listeners, and welcome to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast, a podcast about connecting people and communities to science and research so that we can join forces together to catalyze sustainable global change. And happy International Women's Day, everyone. This episode is all about celebrating women and celebrating equity. Let's meet our guests. We have Veronica Muanya, who has a background in applied psychology and has been an independent researcher for 17 years in Kenya. She has worked for LVCT Health on various research studies, including the participatory study that we will be hearing about today. She is currently working with the Kenya Medical Research Institute on a study involving mental health screening for adolescents who are living with HIV. We also have Mary Matoki, who is also an independent researcher working at the Kenya Medical Research Institute with 14 years of professional research experience. She is an expert in social and market research and was also a researcher on the community-based program that we will be discussing today. So let's start off by exploring what does International Women's Day mean for you and why is it important? Veronica. For me, International Women's Day is special because I was raised in a family of working women, like I'm a third generation of working women. My grandmothers, my mothers, my aunties were all working women. They were empowered. And as I grew up, I went into research, which is, I, I believe it is my calling, and I managed to go into other communities and I realized that the privileges that I have, a lot of other women don't have those privileges. And so that has been my driving force to be able to empower young people, especially adolescents, girls, and women within our African context who are marginalized and are not able to access good education. I am really passionate about empowering women and young girls. That's great to hear. And it's wonderful. And we celebrate you on this International Women's Day as well. Maria, thank you for joining the podcast. We're really pleased to have you here. So what does International Women's Day mean for you? I think it's a day to remind ourselves that women need support because often women, some women have achieved a lot and even at their highest, whether they are doctors or have a great career, they are usually seen as less by their male counterparts or someone maybe needs to go home, take care of her kids. They're seen with a side eye that, oh, now you can't be like us. We can spend the whole day here or the whole night in an office. But a woman cannot often do that without neglecting her family. So women need support from both, both genders. So if you have a female boss, or a male boss, they should be sensitive to the fact that you're a woman. I guess it's recognizing that the fight for equity for women is not just about engaging women, but changing those social norms. So in relation to that, maybe you could tell us a bit about the work that you've been doing in Kenya at the moment. I understand it was with the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and was around gender-based violence. Tell us a bit more about it. We were doing a community-based participatory study. It was about uh, an intersection of HIV and intimate partner violence. So we looked at several things. Mostly it was about the power that women have uh, or that don't have. Often uh, when in such a community where obviously poverty is involved, money plays a huge role in their lives. We were looking at how that affected now their partnerships, sexual partnerships, and the GBV, 
often some women had to stay in situations that, where they were being uh, sexually uh, abused or uh, physically abused because they didn't have other choices or had to engage in sexual activities because of lack of this basic amenities or just a way for their families to survive. We were looking at how can these women also get power for themselves so that with that power, they're able to now change their surroundings. And this is very important because while involving the community helps us to know now how can we help those women from that area because we don't know the situation. They know some of the practical ways that their lives can be changed because we don't understand the area because we don't live there. But when you participate to them, you see some of the solutions that can be found there because you have experts on the ground. Thank you very much. That really helps me to understand. And it sounds like it's a very sensitive area where you're discussing a lack of choice and power and also the sensitivity of abuse. Veronica, could you outline the practical elements? How did the study take place? Maria said that, you know, you worked with women as co-researchers, but maybe you can give me a little bit more of a description of how you recruited them, the kind of relationship you built up and how the research was conducted. We were very intentional about looking for people who are marginalized, and people who are just the, not, not the normal people. The first thing we did, we went into the community, learned a lot about the community. We had to have meetings, which we attended for a while, not just one meeting. We had two or three meetings before that would communicate about our research. And also we took time to do consenting. I remember like the first meeting we had, the people on the ground, our co-researchers now, were expecting us to just hand them questionnaires, tell them how many people we want them to go find in the community. And we just had a meeting and closed the meeting and told them we are meeting again next week. When they started understanding the nature of the study and what we are looking for. And the first thing that they all responded to us and told us is, this is a unique study. You value us. You think about us, you are not just here to collect data. You're here to really find out the truth about what is happening on the ground. We recruited people from a representation of different people in the community, like uh, young women who are mentors from LGBT who are mentoring other adolescents, young girls in their community. We also wanted a representation of a Muslim person because the first thing we did was the mapping of the community, understanding the population of the community. And then we made sure that we had a representative of every person that is in the community, a religious leader, people living with HIV, um, someone from the LGBTQ community, people living with disability. And that's how we selected the core researchers because we needed people who will be able to identify with the needs of people. We had 11 core researchers over a period of one year. It's really interesting that you were able to communicate the care and empathy you had for the research and for the people involved in the research. Veronica, 
as the research took place over a year, the relationships between the co-researchers, did you see that change throughout that year? We worked together, different people from different walks of life, representing different groups of people in the community, worked together in harmony, respectful. One of the things that was very important for us is confidentiality. Everybody knew that they were part of this research, but nobody knew why the other person was selected. The religious leader did not know. We managed to keep confidentiality of people's identity. For instance, we, none of the co-researchers knew that this person is either lesbian or this one is a sex worker or this one is gay or this one is a religious leader. The disclosure of identities was an issue because some of them feared being found out. So we tried to make them feel safer about disclosure, but that was a risk. We also managed to communicate and discuss about respect as a group. And so we developed guiding rules that guided us and we worked within the rules. Each time we had a meeting, we had to go through what uh, what the rules were, like respect one another, share your opinion freely, listen to one another. All this is something that the whole group worked together to formulate. It's not an alien thing. We brought it from outside to the community and said, this is what we are going to do. We observed those rules and they guided us. And the whole year we worked really well. Even after exiting the community, the co-researchers have continued to meet and tell their community about the results of the study. Maybe one other thing we also did, we created a safe place where, of course, we understand that the community is an informal settlement in Kenya where people, people are living below the poverty line, that is below 1.90 dollar per US dollar per day. And so of course the needs were many, even among us as a team. And so we had we created a kitty and a way a mechanism where we can work through in case someone is in a situation that needed to be addressed. We had a, a way of verifying. We had members of the co-researchers who would go assess the problem and see if it's valid and if it's something that can be assisted so that it was a continuous process throughout as we went on with the study. The emphasis also on part of the risk was how after we've exited, they are going to go back to their state. If you were unemployed or you didn't have something coming in, how would you handle it? We had to discuss it openly and see how they're going to manage and cope with the situation after the project is over. So you recruited co-researchers from different marginalized groups within an informal settlement. And then over a year, you did some research. Veronica, can you tell us about some of the methods uh, that were involved over that year? And what did they show? So some of the methods, we actually did um, qualitative interviews. We did focus group discussion with community members. And we sampled a representation of different community members, especially those that were marginalized within the community. We had a focus group with people living with HIV. 
We had a focus group with sex workers, community health volunteers, people living with disability, young people. The method was focus group discussion, really. We also had in-depth interviews that we conducted with organizations, especially stakeholders that are working within the community. So we wanted to see how we can link stakeholders also together and see how they can work together to fight intimate partner violence, especially for people living with HIV. So what did the study find and uh, how has the, the work been disseminated? Okay, so the, actually we, it was quite interesting. The findings were quite interesting, but we realized that gender inequality was the main driver for HIV and intimate partner violence. And for instance, there are those systematic things that were still operating in the community. For instance, if it's in a marriage relationship, you find everybody will think the man is supposed to be the provider of the family. And remember, this, this is a community where people are earning less than $2 a day. If... Um, someone is not gaining something from you that is monetary, then the relationship cannot work. You find women are taken advantage of by different people because of the hard economic situations in the community. This is a woman, she's a mother, she's married, but her husband, of course, cannot afford to cater for all their needs. So you find the neighbor who is probably the landlord they have not paid rent, so the neighbor who is the landlord would want to get intimate with this woman so that she can waiver their rent probably for that month. Then she takes her children to school and she doesn't have enough money to pay school fees. The principal of the school would want to have a sexual relationship so that the children can continue going to school. When the women go to work, they go for casual work. The managers at the workplace, the industries, would want to have, again, a sexual relationship so that they can get a job. So you find for women, including the person selling vegetables, the Boda Boda rider, that is the mode of transport they use, is motorbikes, the list goes on. We call them Boda Boda here. You don't have money, again, the woman will have to give her body to to get transport. The woman will have to give her body to the religious leader in case she's looking for a child so that the religious leader can pray for her. I mean, the cycle just goes on and on. It was quite an eye-opener, even for our core researchers, as we continue to analyze, because we worked with them, collected data together, analyzed the data together with them, and disseminated the findings. Even as they went through the whole process, the thing that we know we left in Korogosho is the ownership. They owned the project and they realized that this is our community and we need to do something and we need to share the information to our community members. So because of that, they have continued to work together to disseminate the findings to the community members. They talk to their neighbors, telling them about intimate partner violence, the importance of fair to report and systems like that, they're sharing the information. Maybe 
Maria would like to add how we disseminated the findings? Several of our researchers uh, gave us stories uh, now as an informal way that they helped their friends and neighbors deal with uh, some of the cases of GBB that were happening. They gave them information about whatever they learned in our sessions. Plus now the dramas that they put on, we disseminated to the people in power in the community itself. So the chief, the police, and other people around. Some of our researchers are community volunteers. They deal a lot with the community. The information they got, they used it. They keep using it even now on the community. We had an FM station where we did some interviews on them. The FM station is based in the community, so I'm sure it impacted the community. Tell us a bit more about the dramas. What was the aim of the drama and how was it delivered? The aim was uh, to show how intimate partner violence may occur. Sometimes some scenarios are not seen as intimate partner violence by some people. So we wanted to show the different ways that it can happen, it can occur, that even the woman can be the instigator and the one causing the abuse and how now money is involved in the whole agenda. I would just like to add to what Maria was saying about intimate partner violence being normalized to the extent that if someone sees someone like a husband beating the partner or the wife, nobody will come in to separate them. It is so normalized. Then to some extent, even these issues are normalized until even our own co-researchers were surprised to realize that some of the things that just go on in the community that seem like normal things are actually intimate partner violence and they are actually criminal, that they can actually be find vindication through the government system. At the drama, they acted out the scenarios, the normal scene scenarios that may occur in the community. And so they prepared a nice kit that would communicate our findings. And this kit was very elaborate and the audience would really relate with what was being acted out. So it was a very good way of disseminating the findings. The other thing we did that we forgot to mention is we had a local painter who painted also the scenarios of the nine things that came out, the imagined issues that came out in the study. Our co-researchers each have copies of the painting that they are able to use to illustrate the findings of the research and they are able to communicate to their neighbors and other community members. It sounds like the creative dissemination was really very important for this project. And I can imagine it also helped to overcome some of the sensitivities around the topic area. So really great to hear that. And I'm glad you added that. Maria, we would like to end the episode by asking you, what is your one piece of advice that you would give to others who are trying to transform the gender norm within communities and promote gender equity? In a community, I think community participatory research, I think that is a big thing. Involve the community you are going to research or you are dealing with. 
that way you get a lot of information from them, how to help them, because as an outsider, you would never understand what they need. Also, have men as part of the, whatever you're doing, because you will create empathy on their side. If we can do that, that would really help. We are not adversaries. We can support each other to support women. The man can do something to be a part of it. So the men in the group change after the discussions, they seemed more empathetic. So they become a support system for the women. Thank you very much. Were there some recommendations for our global listeners around what can be done to try to address this gender inequity? I think the first thing that we learn when you work together with the community members, you see these are people who are not exposed to so much information. For instance, they didn't even know how we were talking about power and power imbalances, and they did not even know the history of their country and even the history of their community. They are caught up in the day-to-day survival living, and so their minds will not go beyond their community. So you find they are not really exposed to a lot of information. Then there's a lot of exploitation also from outside. For people who are coming to work with communities, sometimes you may not see it as exploitation, but when you just go in a rush to the community, collect your data, write your reports, and then disseminate maybe online. We have good places where we can read lots of papers and a lot of good work that has been done. But the community members have no idea what the results were for the research that was done in their community and affecting their community. So I think the best thing, even as we are disseminating to other global platforms, it is good to disseminate the information also to the community and help them come up with ideas and solutions that are local, local solutions that can affect their community in a positive way and bring change in their community. Thanks very much for that. It's really about working with communities to jointly find local solutions that are relevant for that context. And it sounds like the community and the co-researchers that you worked with decided how they wanted to share that information and what information they wanted to share as well, which adds that power and ownership that you discussed. The other piece of advice is we also think about when we exit the community, how we can plan to empower the community members to be part of our project so that when we do our work on the ground, we can also leave an empowered community behind us. I think that's really important in terms of when you plan community-based projects, I think quite often we think about the data collection and the dissemination but not so much about what happens after the research project ends and the resources that are needed to enable that empowerment to be transformational. So I think that's really a key message there for our listeners. So thank you for helping us celebrate International Women's Day with such important, strong messages of solidarity and unity as we work together. To our listeners, please like, rate, share and subscribe. We have another episode coming for International Women's Day. So do tune in. And thank you, Veronica. And thank you, Maria, for joining us. Bye for now.